0: Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business. We talk to insurtech leaders and founders, innovators and change agents from the insurance industry. We also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry, such as organizational psychologists, performance coaches and investment professionals. Anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. Um, I'm your host, Alex Bond, uh, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by James from EOS Ventures. James, good morning. How are you doing? Yeah, hey, Alex. Yeah, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. I I'm. Um, it, I have to talk about the weather. It's, it's the rule in my podcast as well, and it's a bit grim, so I'm not as good as I was the last couple of weeks. It's been a bit sunny, but um, where are you joining me from? What sunny, uh, balmy side of the world are you joining me from today? Uh, so just
1: outside London, actually, um, my wife and I moved out um, sort of back end of last year. Uh, so sort of joined a, quite a lot of people, I think, who've moved out of the city and uh, try and get a bit more space and, and you know, been working from home now for, for almost a year. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. crazy
0: i know I, I i think we spoke before i joined the exodus and moved to brighton so um, i don't know who's left in london nowadays but we'll find out soon enough but um look thanks for being a guest i, I was i was talking about um uh, eos ventures to someone the other day and 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 um you know you guys form a unique position in this sort of vc community so um i wondered if you might be kind enough to introduce um eos ventures and, and what you guys do yeah sure so um yeah,
1: EOS is one of the first uh, global dedicated insure tech funds. So we saw an opportunity back in 2016 to launch a venture fund and essentially bridge the gap between the new emerging insure tech innovators and the insurance incumbents. Mm-hmm. And so we did that um, via a venture capital vehicle um, and we really focused on the sort of strategic side of, of the business. So I say we're strategic for a number of different reasons. I guess the first is that we only focus on insurtech or, or technology that has an application into the insurance industry. Um, secondly, the EOS investment team, and we're split between the US and the UK. Um, you know, all have complementary backgrounds, whether it's um, advisory, investment banking, venture capital investing, and, and as operators. Um, But the the glue that holds us all together is our insurance knowledge, network and experience globally. Um, And so then the third reason I say we're strategic is that all of the investors into our fund, you know, they're all from the insurance industry. So we're working with insurers and reinsurers in the UK, Europe, America, Canada and Asia. So they've invested in us, I guess, first and foremost, for a financial return like any other VC. we also have a very strong strategic working relationship with them so we can act as their eyes and ears into the insure tech world you know we're complementary to any of their other ongoing investment and in innovative op- um, projects um, that they may already have um, going and we essentially act as an extension of their management team so we can help them think through their innovation priorities we can introduce them to our deal flow we can introduce them to our portfolio um, and then equally you know, all of our portfolio companies, you know, have at least one commercial relationship with, with one of our investors or our broader network. So we really are trying to bridge that gap between sort of the incumbents and, and, and working in partnership with the industry, as well as investing in some of the sort of new emerging technologies that are driving value for the industry.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. There's a man who's done a few uh, pitches uh, on that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Probably sounds quite robotic <laughs> no it's good succinct but like full I like it um yeah. uh, one thing that I wanted to kind of um d- dig into a little bit is is how does that um how does that relationship work with the kind of investors of the fund so you're working with big insurance companies for example that have invested in the fund um yeah. do do some of them have their own internal innovation venture function do you do you work in partnership with that how does that sort of relationship work yeah, absolutely. Uh, a, a number of our LPs do have
1: um, you know, labs and various initiatives and chief innovation officers and chief digital officers. So they they definitely all have their own internal processes and and, and uh, initiatives. I'd say that how we engage with each of those is different from, from investor to investor. And it's really down to how they want to engage with us. Um, you know, for some of them, it's just the regular monthly updates that they want to receive um and then sort of more ad hoc um conversations and meetings on certain topics you know it could be telematics for example Mm. you know what's going on globally in the telematics market who's doing what you know what technologies are out there if we were to launch a product what would it look like so we we do some ad hoc things like that Mm. and then with some of them we have more formal relationships around um you know forming sort of innovation working groups where we're a little bit more embedded into their existing projects and, and almost act as a sounding board as they work through sort of different um, initiatives internally. Um, you know, that's great for us to build strong relationships with our investors. It's good for us to feed back what we're seeing in, in the insure tech market. And equally, when we're speaking to new startups and new portfolio companies, you know, having a good understanding of what's going on within our investor base you know we can then make those introductions um, that benefit both the portfolio and the investors from a strategic perspective but it it, it's important to add that um you know we're fully independent um so we have full discretion over where we invest how we invest um which is obviously very different to a corporate venture arm or a cvc yeah so you know we like to think that we have the um independence and you know free of conflicts from from a VC investing perspective but we have the added benefit and value of having that strategic relationship as and when we may call on it um, as part of um, you know building these portfolio companies.
0: Mm-hmm. It must be a massive USP to to companies that you know if you're pitching up against other, other funds or you know other investment vehicles to have that kind of have that in your locker that you've got, that's where the money comes from. And, and you've got that kind of integration into those businesses. Is, is is that the sort of key thing that people kind of focus on when they...
1: Yeah, I, I, I think initially they appreciate that we understand the industry. Mm. Uh, we understand the, the nuances of the insurance value chain and the, the products and the lines of business and customer demands and behaviors. So they're not having to explain the the proposition or the market opportunity in quite such detail mm. as 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 they may have to do for a more generalist or or um you know generic fund so mm. i think they appreciate that in those early conversations and and then equally you know all of the um you know all of the startups that they want to work with investors that can help them in some way over and above just money and Certainly, the way that we like to work with our portfolio companies is helping them navigate the insurance industry, whether it's thinking about the product roadmap and, you know, what business model to pursue, all the way through to who are some of the strategic partners that you could go and speak to to help you launch, um, you know, new products in new markets or, you know, a lot of the time insurtechs are looking for capacity to launch their own MGAs you know, we can help facilitate those introductions into our investors, and to our wider network to help them to find that capacity. Mm-hmm. So I think, and then as well with the the, the insurtechs that are focused on B2B software sales, you know, it's hard selling into these insurers. And so if we can help with, you know, even just one or two introductions um, into our network, I think that that really helps the business. And I think the startups see the value in that. And and personally, what, what we'd really like to do actually is co-invest with other VCs. So, and and from a startup's perspective, they then get the best of both worlds. So, if we co-led around with a deep tech investor or a fintech investor that has got great experience of B2B SaaS sales, you know, we can bring the insurance knowledge and experience, and they can bring some of the SaaS experience and, and that seems to be um a great combination that, that's worked well with a few of our portfolio companies already
0: yeah yeah so one thing i you know is that is that how you define smart money because the term smart money has been thrown around a lot it's been a bit of a buzz phrase on this podcast um but what does that mean to you is is it that kind of insurance knowledge specialist knowledge of of the area that you're investing in yeah i think i guess my
1: my view of smart money is really an investor that brings more than just money Mm -hmm. Um, so it could be an angel investor that spent 20 years in the industry um, or as being a founder and ceo themselves who is going to help you think through how to build the business you know what how to think about product development And, you know, if they are, you know, someone who's well-connected in the insurance industry, then they can help you with some sales opportunities. Mm. Um, So, you know, particularly in the UK where you've got the benefits of EIS and SEIS relief at those sort of early angel rounds, you know, we're seeing a lot of startups um, taking some money from from great smart angels that are going to really help them sculpt the business and get the business in good shape at that early stage as well as warm introductions into the industry. Um, Mm. And then for us as a, a, as a VC, then yeah, we would also like to think because we focus only on insure tech and we, we know the market that we can then help, you know, these insure tech startups navigate the industry and unlock doors, whether it's new markets or new partners. Mm. And then, you know, that's, that's what we set out to do four years ago. And that's what we've actually demonstrated in, how we've worked with our portfolio companies um,
0: so far. Mm. And so like insuretech. In one of the challenges I, I foresee is that, you know, how do we define what that is? Um, because the scope is, you know, presumably as wide as all the way to kind of a full stack digital insurer. That's within scope through to, you know, some B2B technical solutions solving like one small part of the value chain or one challenge um do, do you look at it that broadly or, or how do you guys define it
1: yeah so i mean you've obviously got different ways to look at it you've got the the business model perspective which is what you i guess you've just described around you know b2b SaaS all the way through to fully licensed carriers um, and from our perspective um you know we've invested in all different business models we've done b2b SaaS. we've done MGA's. Um, one of our portfolio companies is now a full stack insurer as they acquired um, state licenses in the US to become um, a fully licensed carrier. So um, we're open to investing in all those business models. And yes, it's an important part of our um, diligence when we're looking at those startups, because you will assess them on sort of different metrics and, and look at them from a different perspective. Um, when I think about insure tech, you know, the very very broadest of definition I'd say is sort of any technology that's driving value for the insurance industry. Um, and so occasionally we find ourselves looking at things like health tech. Um, you know, we're looking at a business at the moment that's focused on open banking. So whilst they wouldn't be a pure insure tech play in in, in sort of the, that sense of the term there is an open banking opportunity, you know, that is going to be able to create new services and products that are relevant to insurance customers and insurance companies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we, we look at those types of things as well.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And and it's funny, actually, just reflecting on my kind of experience, that's, that's, but that's been my understanding of it. I mean, I've most recently had a couple of health tech businesses reach out and say that we, we see there's a, um, basically a revenue generation stream within their marketplace, which 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 is from the insurance industry. So kind of looking for that insurance um, individual to come and bring that knowledge to the business. So yeah, starting to see that play out. Um, I probably haven't um, proactively chased it down very much, but um, yeah, it, it, particularly in the health tech space, I think that seems to be quite of interest. Um, and then a lot of the IOT stuff, um, you know, the application is quite clear. Um, yeah, I'd say there's a lot of adjacent businesses um
1: that are either sat on a wealth of data that's relevant to insurance companies but not currently being used by insurers Mm. um but there's also then um you know a whole host of businesses that have got a very loyal customer base and they see an opportunity to sell insurance to their customers alongside their other products and services Mm. so you know you're already seeing that everyone's talking about it sort of in the last year or so embedded insurance so you see those types of opportunities arise where you're starting to deal with companies on the peripheral of, of what the sort of the, the insure tech definition is mm.
0: Mm. yeah it's interesting it's, it's, it's sort of broadening the scope um particularly around the embedded model um i'm really pleased you came on the one the, one of the things that, I, that comes up a lot in in, in the interviews is is you know, funding, challenges of funding, the scale of it. Um, um, but I think unless you've actually done that process as a, a, a you know, a founder um, and even someone that's kind of is a founder, they might not have gone through this process. Um, I want to understand a little bit more about it. So um, I know that you said these kind of kind of one of the sort of one, the same things, but what are the kind of most common things that people misconceive about the role of the VC and, and maybe I'll roll it in as well as so what what do people not know about the VC role like
1: um so there's, there's probably a, a couple of things to mention um, a, a decent chunk of of, of of an investor's time is spent on on networking and deal sourcing so you know across across the EOS investment team you know we probably on average speak to five new companies a week mm-hmm. and we've been doing that for the last four years so that that's a lot of companies that we've spoken to we've spent time on we've 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 been pitched to mm-hmm. um, and then you know to date we've made seven insure tech investments
2: mm-hmm.
1: so if you think about that funnel you know we've spoken to a huge amount of insure globally and we've only made seven investments um, and that's pretty common across the whole bc market and so if you sort of work that you know flip that around and look at it from a startup's perspective you know you are going to have to go out and speak to you know 50 uh 50 plus investors to try and find that one or two investor that that's going to participate in the round and and and, and maybe that's you know it's clear to a lot of startups i speak to but not all and, mm-hmm. and so actually you know it is tough to fundraise i appreciate that from a from a CEO's perspective, you know, it is time-consuming, but I don't think there's any way around it other than going out and and, and speaking to as many investors as you can, um, and then running a a, a very sort of tight process around that to try and be as efficient as possible. I know that there was a, a Harvard Business Review that was published, I think a week or two ago, and they surveyed 900 VC investors in the U.S. And pretty much, you know, unanimously, everyone agreed that the best deals often come from their trusted, you know, co-investors and, you know, previous entrepreneurs they've backed and people that they they, they work with and that network with within the industry. And so I guess you, you class those as warm leads. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, I think it was about 60% um, of, of the investments they ended up doing came from their network. Um, and then another 30% was proactively the VC reaching out to the startup because they were researching a particular thesis or theme. Mm-hmm. You know, I think only roughly 10% of deals were, 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 done through cold calls. So it's just worth bearing in mind the amount of, uh, startups that these VCs are meeting and how it's sometimes quite hard to, um, get funded and so if you can try and get those warm introductions and obviously if you can have uh, you know a very um you know well-run pitch you know all of those things help to try and
0: to get you funded basically mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, I was just thinking about that as you we were going because it seems to be the same it doesn't matter what industry you work in or what kind of process you know the best way to get a job is to get a warm referral from someone you know um, do you think that just do you think the correlation is because that the person making the referral is kind of all doing a bit of the vetting for you, or is that is it as a, as as the VC firm you feel more comfortable because you've had a referral? Um, yeah, I think it's the former.
1: I think it's more the fact that it's a it's a vetted, um, you know, it, it's a vetted introduction from someone that you respect and know, you know, who who has you know a good perspective on the market. Mm. then you value their opinion and so if they're telling you that they've been working with a company and that you should take a look then you know you might um you know take that obviously quite seriously and then you've got a few other people there that you can do reference calls with and validate the the business model Mm. um so it's really sort of that that vetting process and that that filtering process that you get from from that network i'd say Mm.
0: It sounds sounds more collaborative as a kind of community or or as an industry than perhaps outwardly you might think it would be. Because imagine it's obviously competitive as well. But is is there probably more collaboration than we expect? I mean, it is. yeah,
1: it is competitive for sure. Um, And, you know, just in the last couple of weeks, you know, we've been involved in a process where a company received four term sheets. So, like, there are definitely those competitive deals that you have to then um, position yourselves to try and be the investor that ends up being selected to work with the startup. Mm. Um, But I I find generally, like, other venture capital investors are willing to sort of share ideas, um, regularly catch up, look at things together, And, and that's mainly because, you know, there are only a very few dedicated tech funds and, you know, we have relationships with most of them. So we have a good working relationship with them, but just more broadly, sort of the larger VC community who are more generalists and more tech focused and even more reason to have a working relationship with them because we're complementary. Mm. and, and equally it's, it, it can be quite rare for one VC to take the full round. So if a company is raising 10 million, um, you know, typically what I see is it's a syndicate of investors rather than a one investor. And so, again, that lends itself to, you know, bringing in VCs that you've worked with before, you know, that could help and, and the lead investor sort of taking charge of, of, of bringing that syndicate together um, for, the, for the benefit of the company, really, because the company then gets, you know, two or three investors around the table who all complementary skill sets and, and, and backgrounds. It's going to help the business grow.
0: Hmm. Mm. sounds like the lloyd's market subscription market it's a, a yeah. similar, similar structure um, also on, the,
1: on the fundraising piece you know vc funds have to go through that as well you know when we raised our first fund you know we had to speak to a, a huge amount of investors um just to get the fund launched so you know we we know the pain in the process from from our own perspectives as well as um you know from from the startup's perspectives
0: mm. what's the what's what's within your sort of appetite what do, what, what does What's the EOS sweet spot? What does that look like in terms of kind of what stage you want to come in? What size of investment do you like to make? Um, as, yeah, as, as, as transparent as you can be. I, I don't know what you Yeah, can. yeah,
1: yeah. Um, well, our sweet spot is Series A. Um, and so that's sort of really a check for sort of two to five million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we can write larger checks than we have done. Um, we can write smaller checks than we have done. And, and so we, we can sort of go one... Um, one round higher or lower than that sweet spot. But really what we're looking for is a business that has got uh, a strong team in place, you know, has demonstrated some product market fit and some traction. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we feel like they're at an inflection point that if we came in as investors, you know, we could be additive to what the business is already doing and help scale that business, you know, faster. So, you know, for example, if they've got, you know, five to ten customers already um you know that is a point at which we could invest to then help take the business to the next 20 30 customers um the earlier companies that are still doing sort of the first one or two pilots or still trying to you know really find that product market fit you know we have gone early at that stage but i wouldn't say it's really our sweet spot and i think that um particularly in the UK as well, that you know, the, the, the seed funds and the, the angel investors sort of really do those early rounds and then we can then come in and do a sort of larger Series A. Hmm.
0: That's that's often talked about as um, the kind of difference between the US uh, VC market and, and then your sort of European sensibilities that sort of Europe wants to see there's more traction already, whereas kind of the community is more kind of, gets in a bit earlier in the US. Do you think that's a kind of fair generalisation or is that, um, or maybe that's reflective of EIS and things like that in the UK market? No, I think, I think it's fair. I think that, um, you know, a,
1: a big, yeah, I'd say like a Series A in the US, you know, you can end up getting sort of quite large numbers um, and, and still have very little traction, whereas I think in in, in, in Europe, um, you know, y- you need to see that traction really for that Series A. Um, so I, I would agree with that. And then, you know, other people, you know, different investors have got different definitions of Series A and what they want to see. And I get asked quite often, you know, what, what's the right number to come back to you and have a conversation with you around my Series A? You know, is it 1 million ARR? Um, and what, what I sort of tend to say to startups is that you, a VC might tell you it's one million of ARR, but when you go back to them with one million of ARR, they might say, oh, it's two. You know, f- f- for us, we don't really have like a set revenue number to hit before we, you know, before we will invest. You know, what we're really looking for is a business that's been able to demonstrate that they've moved away from the pilot phase and into sort of straight full production and full contracts Um, and being able to show development from those early pilots into full production multi-year contracts if it's a SaaS business Mm. Um, and and basically being able to demonstrate that you've taken the business forward and you've got a repeatable sales model and a product that is driving value for for the customers. Mm. The, The challenge that I always find is that a lot of insurtechs find it easy-ish to find the five, the first five early adopters. And they can be quite big names, like quite big logos within the industry. Um, and, you know, they, they, they will be working on particular, you know, specific pilots, which is great. What's really, really challenging is taking those first five early adopters and then growing it to a customer base of 15. Mm. So... And actually a lot of businesses have come on stock in the past um, where they've gone out and raised a lot of money at quite a high valuation off the back of these sort of first five early adopters because they're great logos. Um, but the business and the startup has then struggled to continue that momentum of traction and hasn't been able to grow into the valuation that they raised at. And so then they end up having down rounds or struggling to raise money. So you can sort of fall into that trap as well when you've got those early adopters and then struggle to then push on and, and, and sell to more customers. And so when we come in at Series A, what we're really saying is that we want to see a company who's been able to demonstrate that they're at that inflection point where they've been able to move away from those early adopters. And they've got a product that works, that's driving value for the industry and can be, you know, we see a line of sight to the next 15, 20 customers.
0: Mm, mm. I mean, we've covered a, you know a large chunk of kind of what I was going to ask you there. So I suppose getting more granular about it, that's kind of like where they are as a stage as a company. But I get asked this a lot because I think um I've got my phrase that I like to use that I think every insurance professional I speak to thinks they've got one good insure tech in them, like everyone's got one good book. Um but we get to this pitch point and everyone's like, I don't know what to put in a pitch. Um, so what I suppose we could we could mash them together at your suggestion because you, 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 you said like I said what makes a good pitch and you were like oh, it's kind of what makes a bad one is it just as important so it'd be good to kind of get into a bit more detail because I think you've covered off of where they need to be company wise but you yeah, know what makes a good pitch what are you looking for if someone gets their their 5, 10, 20 minutes I don't know what they get with you these days but um, uh, what makes a good one? Um...
1: I mean, you've got to hit all of the key points around team, product, market, those, you know, the usual stuff that that that, that most people will say goes in a pitch. I guess to be more specific, you know, we we really spend a lot of time thinking about the team um, and, you know, what is the manage, and, and not just the CEO as well, you know, the, the whole management team, because at the, in the early stages, there tends to be maybe one CEO that does, you know, wears five different hats and over time, you have to hire great talent, as you know, to, to take off, to take the burden away from the CEO and keep the business moving forward. So we really like to understand um, what the team composition looks like. And, and on the pitch, it's great to have some of those senior members of the team on pitching their particular and relevant parts of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's quite easy with a pitch to get bogged down in the detail and really focus on the product and the market opportunity. But... You know, we really like to think and spend a bit of time talking to the team, you know, understanding their experience, whether it's, you know, more weighted towards insurance, whether it's more weighted towards tech. Are they a first-time CEO? You know, have they done this before? Um, Is the team complementary? Is it a team that we think that we could work with over the the long time, the long relationship we'll have as part of an investment? Um, So it's really an opportunity for, the startup to show sort of the strength and depth in the team mm-hmm. um, and what we're asking ourselves from an investor perspective on the other side of the fences. Um, the, the answer to the question really is, um, you know, why, why is this the right team and, and will they be able to execute on the plan and be successful? Mm. Um, and I guess to flip that round, you know, what, um, what do people do, you um, wrong in a pitch is, is sometimes the CEO will let others pitch. And, and, and that's great to like hear other people in the team, but it's really important for us to understand the CEO's vision, their aspirations, the way they think about culture, the way they think about business building. You know, they're ultimately responsible for the success of the company. Um, so we don't really like it too much when the CEO shies away from presenting their own business but absolutely love it when it's sort of shared around the management team. Mm. Um, The other thing I'd say is sort of just preparation. You know, some of the best pitches we see, you know, they've got the right people on the call. Everyone knows the key points to cover. They've rehearsed it. They use slides to where they need to, to make a point, but don't overuse slides. You know, a lot of them have prepared FAQ documents that can be sent after the pitch because a lot of investors have similar questions. Um, so I really think being completely prepared, knowing who's saying what, hitting all of the key points—you know—you think that was obvious, but actually, it's quite refreshing when you see a startup that just nails it, covers everything, well prepared, you know, hand off between them very, very swiftly, and cover all the key points. Um, and you know, that's an engaging pitch. You know, that's a, a memorable pitch. And given, like I said at the start, we speak to five to 10 companies a week, you know, that's sort of really what you wanna be leaving the investor with is that is that memory of, of, of the strong pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. then I think that's an important part in the team.
0: That's, I think that's really interesting because, you know, I think your phrase just then like nailed it because I think we, we say things obviously, so, so it'd be the same as me. I, I think when I'm telling people about the interview process, I sometimes, uh, you know, you you sit on the balance of going. Am I stating the obvious to people that are quite senior? But the reality is, you know, it's not always obvious, and it and it doesn't. Even if it is, doesn't mean people are prepared for it because they're nervous, and it means a lot to them, and there's a lot of stake. So I think there's um. I think there's I think there's a value in pointing that out and being rehearsed. Um, but I'm surprised how much of the focus is on people. You know, like most of what you said really was like having the right team, having the right people. Um, so it, th- is that the priority over, you know, the, could you have a great product or service that's just got the wrong people and therefore for you that this just is never going to work? Have you seen that?
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think certainly the earlier you invest, you know, team is is fundamental to the success of the business you know they have to be able to execute on the plan mm. they have to be the face of the company going speaking to customers you know keeping the team happy you know making sure the part you know you're working with the right partners keeping all areas of the business moving forward mm. um, you know a lot of the time we see businesses that that have got a great product you know makes a lot of sense on paper but maybe they just don't have the team in place to to be able to execute Um, equally if you invest in a very very strong management team um, you know they might have to pivot three times they might have to change the product they might have some setbacks and that's pretty much always going to happen when you're investing in startups so if you have a strong team that is able to adapt to those changing um, dynamics you know you've got as far Greater chance of them being successful and executing on a plan than, than a team that that maybe isn't as strong. So yeah, I'd, I'd say team is, is a very important factor in in um, in our assessment of an investment at an early stage. And so
0: on the team front, um, is there something? Is there a theme of skill sets, people, roles that 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 the startups tend to lack? The ones that you think are kind of whether, even whether you fund them or not, I suppose, you know, because is, this, is there a theme there? Um,
1: you know, we, we, we typically like to see a blend because we only focus on insurance. You know, mm. we typically like to see a blend of, of insurance experience and, you know, entrepreneurial and tech experience. You know, people who know what it's like to work in a team of 10 mm. and grow it to a team of 100 um you know know how to build scalable products and technology um but then also people who understand the insurance industry you know speak the language of their customers understand how underwriters will be thinking about using their product you know think about um how insurers are going to be thinking about partnering with them from a capacity perspective so having that blend of insurance and tech experience thinks very important mm-hmm. um You know, we we will invest in first-time founders. um, You know, and we have done where we've seen potential. We've seen you know a a very very strong team. Um, But equally, if 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 there's a company that's a founder that's been there and been successful and had two exits before, then obviously that you know and and they've they've demonstrated that they've been able to scale businesses in the past. They know what it takes to to build these businesses. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very very difficult for. you know, corporate. You know, people who worked in a corporate environment their whole lives to then go and work in a startup of five people, mm. and the change is just, you know, it, it's just chalk and cheese. And you know, some people flourish, uh, and some people really struggle, and and, and that is, um, you know, cons- some of the considerations that we, we, we go through
0: when we're looking at team. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I see that a lot. I, I, you know, there's um. What's, as a book of what's It's what got you here won't get you there it's a book i've read and, and and i can't remember the author now which is rude of me but um i always think that a lot when i'm talking about people you know because i deal with execs all the time they're going up they're in insurance They're going i want to go into the insurtech world and um i i get the kind of want because there's so much press and it looks exciting but i always have to flip it back and go well what what do you bring and, and obviously, there's insurance knowledge there, and it's valuable. And sometimes it is, but sometimes it's going. You need a broader skill set than you're possibly doing at the moment, because in more established businesses, your roles are much more siloed, so you become very specific on that area. But obviously, you know, in a in a in a startup of any nature, um, you know, you're doing. I was, yeah, I was talking about someone who did his fundraise the other day and the first thing he had to do was come back in the office and take the bins out you know because there was no one else to do it and I was like that's 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 the lifestyle um yeah think- so look I'm conscious of your time and, and we sort of uh, I think we've covered some really good ground there but um you know what's um what did the pandemic mean for you I wanted to sort of know that did it did it did you manage to kind of operate through it? Um, has it changed the way that the fund's going to kind of work going forward, even just from a kind of physical standpoint? Um, did that have much of an impact on you guys? Um, well, i would say as a firm,
1: you know, we've been fairly used to working remotely prior to the pandemic. You know, we've got offices in the US and the UK, we've got advisory board members globally. And so we were fairly used to working remotely and on video. So it wasn't too much of a change for us personally within the business. You know, there was a, there was a change. It was a slight shift in how we approach diligence because prior to that, you know, we like to sit down with the CEO. We like to sit down with the management team. You know, we like to do a number of different sessions, talking through different elements of the business. Mm -hmm. You know, even in a social setting, it's great to go out for dinner and, and, you know, have that, build that more informal relationship as well. So there, there was definitely a shift of how do we how do we continue to to have that type of uh, rigor in our diligence process without actually meeting someone face to face. There was a bit of uh, figuring out at the start of the pandemic, and you know we've done deals um, you know during the pandemic, and we've we've actually found that video actually allows you to maybe have more sessions than you previously did face to face. Yeah, you can speak to more people within the business. You can do more reference calls, and so. You know, we we may have actually ended up having more conversations with the management teams than we did previously, albeit not being able to have that sort of face-to-face interaction and maybe that more informal interaction that that we've obviously had to um, you know ch- change our approach to.
0: Mm. I I read sorry, on the Harvard Business Review yesterday actually, and it was a report about communication, effective communication, and and if you see, you know, your VC. Whether they're pitching or on board as part of the same team, they were saying effectively communi- effective communication face to face was was basically as effective on Zoom or you know any video call as long as it was kind of closer to one to one than one to many. Um, you know, it was just as good as face to face, which I thought was really interesting because one thing that I've learned is that we're getting. We're getting better. I think the skills, everyone's getting better skills at kind of doing the kind of video call. But that's what I was interested in to see if it kind of made you guys deal shy, but obviously not, um, you know, because it just changes you because it changed my process. It changed my interviewing process. So I imagine yeah. it would change yours.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say also at the start, there was a short pause because, you know, we, we, we turned our attention more to our existing portfolio mm. and how the pandemic had impacted them Whether there were changes that were needed in the organization you know whether sort of the the health and and happiness and working situation of the teams you know how um you know what what did their cash flow look like and you know did they have sufficient cash if there was a significant drop in revenue so we spent a lot of time with our portfolio making sure that they would they could adjust their businesses and helping them think that through um, and yeah, we know pleased pleased to say that they all were able to adjust and make changes and and, and, and um, you know ride out the pandemic you know some of them even raising you know decent funding rounds you know during the pandemic which is I guess a, a testament to the team and to, to the business they've built um, but you know once once we'd sort of spent time doing that in the first couple of months then yeah we continued to to act as normal really in terms of you know, more, more com- probably more conversations than ever. To be honest, from a deal sourcing perspective, as as companies were, you know, maybe pulling their funding rounds, you know, sooner than they'd anticipated because there was more uncertainty in the markets and the economy. So, you know, there's certainly been a lot of companies out raising money, a lot of conversations we've been having, even albeit remotely.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's interesting how these things have played in, but um, yeah, it's it's such a yeah, it's such an important part of the process is the diligence and, and that face to face diligence is, is still seems to be prioritised. So that's interesting. But look, James, I won't overstay my welcome. Um, thank you very much for being a guest. I really appreciate it. Um, obviously, there'll be lots of super interested parties kind of looking for that VC funding. So I suppose rather than open the floodgates and tell everyone to email you directly with their um, with their with their slide decks um what is the best way to approach you guys and um you know what is the best way to kind of someone to reach out if they're looking for funding or at that, that stage um yeah so it, it, you know linkedin twitter
1: uh email um all, all good ways to get hold of us through our website um so yeah i happy to speak to companies that, that that um you know sort of focus at the series a stage and and um I mean, I'm also conscious that, you know, when you ask me what makes a, a, a good pitch and a bad pitch, we didn't get further than the team. So there's, <laughs> there's obviously quite a lot of other things that, you know, we feel go into a good pitch and things like that. So I'm like, always happy to have further conversations with people on that topic and even yourself. Um, but yeah, we didn't quite get past team. <laughs> we'll
0: have to do a se- episode a, a second series that's that's for sure but um yeah um but now i feel like i can't leave it now i'm like what i'm, I'm now like what what extra <laughs> <laughs> um but but yeah i tell you what we'll, we'll we'll come back to it i'll do a white paper on what makes a good pitch that's what we'll have to do next but yeah
1: um, what well, well, what i would say is is just just on on the pitch um a really important part for me is the go-to-market strategy. I think there's there's definitely a view amongst some startups um, who you know who are heads down on their idea because it's a great idea, um, you know. But I think it's easy for some startups to think, you know, if we build the product, the customers will come. And you think you can ask any B two B SaaS business, you know, trying to sell into the insurance industry, and they'll tell you how hard it is, how you need to find the right sponsor then you need to navigate the large organizations, then your sponsor leaves. And then all of a sudden the sales cycle is 18 months. So Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um, having a really clear idea on that go-to-market strategy, even if you've got the best products in the world, how do you get it in the market? How do you scale and grow? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they are really important questions to answer. Um, And the businesses that have got maybe different, you know, different channels to market, whether it be direct, whether it be through channel partners, whether through be through affinity partners, who really know what it takes to scale the business. You know, they're the pitches that, that are refreshing and well thought through and, and you know, and, and quite often are answered quite badly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes back to my point is that you can find those first five early adopters, but how do you really scale? How do you go to market? How do you get to the next 15 customers? That that is what I think you know. Startups should um, you know, really try and nail and think through and have a clear view on, in, in their mind as to how how they how they how they get the business uh, scaling. I mean that makes
0: sense because I think you know reflecting on my work, like the, most of my assignments in the tech space are in you know, chief revenue officers or head of sales or you know whatever they want to term it, but it's it's building that strategy of how how do you sell and get that product out there. I think I think usually because the founders are are based, it's building something around a tech, or or you know, so it's generally kind of focused the people that deliver that tech solution. Um, Yeah, everyone everyone expects to be atlassian and they don't have to have a sales team and it's going to go out there. But um, because sales tends to be business development, seems to be the sort of dirty word. It's like the bit that people don't want to do. But um, um, uh, I don't know. I think there's culturally something against kind of that that part of the process but you you need people to kind of sell it you need that marketing and and sales
1: piece yeah absolutely And, and and um you know what i always find helps in that process is that if you've built a product that is driving value for the industry and you are driving value for your early adopters you know that is really the sales pitch you know and 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 i guess the general rule of thumb is sort of how we think about it how others think about it in the market is that you know, if you want someone to pay a million dollars a year in licensing fees for your platform, they really have to see, you know, up to a 10x in, in value. And mm-hmm. so what, what I think startups need to be doing at those early pilot phases is actually demonstrating the tangible value that their product delivers to the end consumer or to the, to, to the insurance company And then that then gets threaded into the sales message and pitched to the other customers in that this is the value that we expect to drive from our platform. Um, All of that helps with the sales process. And I think that I don't see enough startups really being able to articulate and demonstrate that value uh,
0: and threading that into their sales process. Mm. Mm. yes yeah, it writes itself right you're, you're writing your own your, your yeah story. i
1: think that's when you turn a meeting you have with an insurer from like a, uh, oh that, that was a really interesting conversation you know that's a nice to have insurtech platform you, you turn it from a nice to have to a must have you know this you, know, you need to have the customer walking out the room being like we need to work with these guys because they're gonna transform xyz you know, they're going to deliver this much value. It's going to move the needle for us. It's going to create competitive advantage versus our competitors. Um, the startups need to be getting in those rooms and having those conversations around sales and getting turning
0: interest into cash, basically. <laughs> and that's and that's the sales guys. That's what they're there for. I, I had one that, that everyone was in a... Every, all the tech people were in one building and all the ops and everything. <laughs> And then they put sales on a separate floor because they were like, oh, we just don't want to be near those salespeople. So there's definitely a sort of a culture clash there. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, that's the, that's the kind of old-fashioned view of sales. And I think sometimes it gets, um, yeah, it's almost seen as kind of ugly, but it is exactly as you say. yeah. It as you, as you, what you were saying about hiring people, um, you know, we, we're,
1: we're talking now about sort of B2B SaaS in short text, yeah, but sure. what you were saying about hiring people were particularly... Challenging is that sales role, because you need someone who understands the product, who understands software sales, um, but speaks the language of the insurance companies and, you know, knows the buyers, whether it's the chief risk officer or whether it's the chief underwriting officer, whether it's a, you know, particular underwriting unit, you know, you need someone that can talk the language of the insurance companies, but have that expertise around software sales building a solid software sales function and, and rev ops function
0: mm. yeah yeah no it's um it's certainly not been easy i mean that's one thing i would reflect on you know finding goods yeah yeah chief revenue officers or, or, or sales guys or business development guys whatever you want to term them is, is incredibly hard because it's that it's that juxtaposition between knowing the market knowing SaaS and knowing insurance is is really hard to find um Mm. i I won't say it too much because that will just increase the prices of the people um (laughs) coming in (laughs) and make my job (laughs) harder um but look james i'm glad we got that in um i'm sorry i sort of jumped over that bit um but um but yeah because it was really valuable to have you on so thank you very much for being a guest Uh, i really appreciate your time yeah thanks for having me
1: alex and uh, good to chat
0: thanks a lot As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly um, either on LinkedIn or via my email at alex@wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.